Jesus, we are thirsty for your word. Would you speak, Lord, to us and soothe our parched lips? Anything, Lord, that I or Father Bob says today, Lord, that is not from your word, may it fall to the ground, may it blow away. But anything that is said that is your word, may it remain and may it bear much fruit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is different. If you, uh, if you told me, Bob, that, I don't know, three months ago we'd be sitting together in a pretty empty room on a Sunday morning talking to a camera with a few people here, uh, I would have laughed. In the midst of a pandemic. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, so what are we doing? Well, um, Father Bob and I decided that uh, doing a dialogical sermon would be a really good thing, uh, not just because of this topic, actually because uh, in this pandemic and virtual worship services, it can be difficult to engage with um, a sermon uh, in, in the kind of monologue format. And so we decided, why not try it? And so this may be terribly unnatural today, we'll just have to see. <laughs> Uh, if that's the case, it's because I've never done this before. <laughs> Neither have I, so we're good. <laughs> so what we pray is that God will not only use this format to minister to all of us, but that chiefly he'll use his word. So today, as a part of our ongoing series uh, on the gospel and culture, we're going to be talking about justice and race. And the reason we've chosen this topic is probably pretty obvious to you. Our nation is once again in turmoil over issues of race and justice, and there is a great deal of division about uh, what is wrong and what we should do about it. And so we have this opportunity, and, and I want to say, more importantly, responsibility to talk about justice and race as a congregation. Now, back in February, when I first introduced the Gospel and Culture series, which is to be ongoing, I said... It really has three goals. And the first goal is this, to learn more about the gospel we believe and what it has to say to the cultural issues we face. So today, what we want to do is seek out a biblical understanding of what justice and race are. Because as Christians, our worldview or, or the way that we understand reality it should be grounded in the Word of God, then it makes sense that we should understand justice and race through the lens of the Word of God and of Jesus Christ. Our culture isn't the lens, our political party isn't the lens, our personal preferences are not the lens. I've said this before, but I can't say it enough, our theology, what, what we believe about God and the world and ourselves, is the thing that determines our ethics or the way that we live, not the other way around. The second goal of this Gospel and Culture series is to learn how to discuss cultural issues meaningfully and hospitably with one another, chiefly in, in the church, in this congregation, in the church universal, but, but also in the world. You see, while the Gospel is chiefly for the church, meaning it should be the thing that shapes everything that we do, it's not just for us. 
it's for the whole world. I mean, that's what the gospel is, God's redemption of humanity. So what God intends to happen is that the gospel so transforms us that we become a picture to the world of what God's new humanity looks like. But also that the church would become this transforming force that goes out into the world and is working for gospel change. And so just as our theology is meant to determine our ethics, so the gospel is meant to determine or to transform our culture. So as we talk about um, justice and race today, Bob and I want to be really clear that um, we are not taking our cues from the culture around us by talking about this today. Uh, We're not trying to stay relevant or to parrot the pundits on either side. Instead, we want to preach and live out the truth of Scripture when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. Uh, Before we get started, let me just say uh, two other things. Uh, Father Bob and I, we we sit before you as two white men, some would say very white men, who, uh, relatively speaking, have not experienced a great deal of injustice or racism personally. And so we come to you humbly, and we expect all of you to do the same. And yet we are at the same time shepherds in God's multi-ethnic church. And we love the scriptures, and so we urge you to open your heart to what your shepherds would say today. Second of all, let me also say that we don't have a lot of time today, and that these are incredibly complex topics. We will be taking longer for the sermon today than we normally do on Sundays, but at the same time we want to put realistic expectations on what the scope of this sermon uh, will, will have. We can't, we can't cover everything. And so I think it's important that all of us will recognize that this must be an ongoing conversation and not something that can be just a one and done. Okay, so to begin with today, we want to turn our attention to the topic of justice. And I want to ask this question, how should we understand justice Biblically speaking, what is the biblical understanding of justice? Well, justice, and it may surprise you, is one of the most important themes in the entire Bible. To rightly understand it, I think we need to go all the way back to the very beginning, in other words, to the book of Genesis. Very often, uh, I, I think in our culture, we are inclined to think of justice as a legal thing, like justice is what happens in a courtroom. It's true, uh, but biblical justice is much broader than that. First and foremost, justice is a relational thing. Justice is when people live in good and right relationships with God, with one another, and with the rest of creation. And and, and Genesis 1 and 2 set this up for us. They show us how God created all things for His glory, and when He made human beings, He made them unique. He made them in His image which is to say that we are made to reflect God's goodness and glory in the world as His stewards. Now, because of this core theology as humanity, as God's image bearers, from that, we can understand that all human beings should be treated as such, as image bearers of God, with with dignity and with equality of personhood. And so when it comes to the relationships that human beings have to one another, Justice means treating God's people and and all the people in the world as 
God's image bearers. Now, right after Genesis 1 and 2 comes Genesis 3. And there we learn how sin enters God's world and it destroys what God had made good and right. Sin destroys good and right relationships to God, to one another, and to the creation. And thus, sin has everything to do with injustice. Injustice in human relationships is essentially when the image of God in another person gets violated. And in human history, that's happened a few times, right? More than once. According to the Bible, injustice happens more than justice. As we watch the story of God's people unfold in the Old Testament, what we see in the prophets is is that when God is angry with Israel, it's primarily for two things. The first thing is idolatry, which is to say worshiping another God, and that actually is an injustice against God. So even idolatry is injustice. The second thing that God gets angry about is Israel's injustice against other humans, not doing what is good and right in those relationships, particularly when it comes to the marginalized. We, we saw this today in our Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 58, and we see it all through the prophets. And, and the thing that's so disturbing about indictments like these is that uh, when God gives them, they are to God's people, and these are God's people. They claim to be saved. They are extremely religious. They want to be moral. And yet God says without justice, it's worthless. The Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. And it has a couple of dimensions to it. And this is really, really important. Mishpat can mean the kind of justice that occurs when someone who does something wrong is punished. And we call this retributive justice. This is what happens in a judicial system, when a judicial system works well. Most often in the Bible, justice isn't talked about in terms of retributive justice, but this second thing. It's when doing right towards someone who is being wrongly treated. And this is called restorative justice. Restorative justice essentially means restoring to a person the things that they should have as an image bearer of God. The hungry should have food. The poor should have financial resources. The orphan should have parents. The vulnerable should have protection. The oppressed should have freedom. The weak should have power. The foreigner should have a safe home. The marginalized should have a voice. And so, restorative justice is when the people of God address these injustices by seeking dignity for those who lack it. See passages like Proverbs 31, verses 8 to 9. Now, we often think of this kind of thing as charity, but the Bible treats it as justice. Now, when we understand justice like this broadly, as as the pursuit of good and right relationships, which includes uh, both retributive justice and restorative justice, then it becomes pretty clear how all throughout the Bible, this theme of justice is showing up. All of redemption 
is about God transforming injustice to justice. So, Bob, we've talked about uh, what biblical justice is. Uh, recently, we've been hearing this word a lot, or this uh, two words, systemic injustice. Mm. And I've heard Christians say a lot of things about this and uh, what it is, whether or not it exists. So can you please uh, talk about what this word means and if the Bible has anything to say about it? Sure. Um, well, and first and foremost, I would say um, that different people use these terms different. <laughs> so, so the way that we've defined it, I think is important to be able to say this is what systemic injustice is. And I think, I think probably in, in, in light of that, there really there's a couple things that you want to look at is that there's an individual element to it and a corporate element to systemic injustice. And if we've learned anything from the coronavirus, it's the fact that we're social creatures. And we want to be together. And when we get together, we make systems. And people have always gathered together um, from, from, you know, from the very beginning of time that we know of is that we've gathered. And so when we do that, we create systems to know how to be together, but given the fact that we're broken, our systems are broken. So it's not as if um, broken people can make perfect systems. So even if Christians made systems, even though we've been restored, the systems would be imperfect. I mean, I, I look back at uh, Acts chapter 6, when um, the Christians were trying to do the right thing, they were trying to demonstrate justice, and so they were trying to feed the widows. You had Gentiles who were non Hebrew, likely Greek, and you had Hebrew widows. And the Gentile widows were saying, hey, look, we're not getting the food that we are supposed to get. And so even within a Christian context, right from the very beginning, right at the, very, right at the center of God's work in the world, you have systemic injustice happening. And so they try to address it. So no human system is perfect, period. No human system perfectly contains the gospel and the kingdom of God. It's just that simple. So that's systemic injustice in the sense that God's rule is not there bringing justice for the oppressed, for those who need it, for those who can't speak for themselves. Well, if that's a given, and I think that it is, I need to think we need to consider what our systems produce. And I want to be really, really clear. Um, I really love this country. I don't want to be the resident or citizen of any other country in the world. I'm proud to be an American, particularly Montanan. Shout out to the 406. But we acknowledge that we have much to do in the work of justice, in the, in the area of justice. Particularly, I think about Montana and I think about our relationship with Native Americans, whom we're not going to speak broadly of today. But when we talk about systemic injustice, and we don't mention those, and we're in the United States, that's, that's a problem. So I happily participate in our systems. I acknowledge the great good they bring. And when I talk about this, I also acknowledge the fact that um, our systems are broken. And there's a role that we play in it. So just because a system is better than another system, that's one of the things that I hear from history, um, doesn't mean that it can't be improved. So somebody would say, well, if you don't choose this system, well, what system would you choose? Um, and, and so I hear that <laughs> uh, frequently, and I think, well, um, I would improve our system. That's what I would do. I wouldn't choose between a bunch of sets of other systems. So I think that's the church's job. I think we're the ones in all of culture to be at the forefront of justice issues. 
Uh, and in fact, the church has led the way previously. I mean, you look back at Wil William Wilberforce in, in the slavery issues and uh, trying to bring an end to slavery across the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And then also the way in which Martin Luther King was leading out of the church toward redemptive work yeah. in the United States. So the church has been a forerunner of these things. And one of the recent voices in that is Tim Keller. I thought he, um, he shared something that I thought was really helpful, and he points out uh, some things that I want to talk about here. And he, he talks about how there's a corporate and an individual sense of responsibility with the gospel. And he says the, the scriptures show that individuals are held accountable for what they've done and for what family members have done and even for what the culture has done. And so I remember um, trying to help students behave in my classroom. And I would say something like, if so-and-so doesn't behave, the rest of the class might get punished. And everybody thought that was really unfair. And I was like, yeah, I think it is too. But that's biblical. Um, you look at Aiken's rebellion, Aiken stole, and his whole family was punished. And you think, man, that doesn't feel right. Well, in the United States, we're really keen on our rights and our individualism, and especially out west, we're individualistic. And so we've lost the sense of kind of a corporate responsibility that you would find pretty much everywhere else around the globe, especially in non-Western world. There's a sense of individual and corporate uh, responsibility for what's going on around us. So the prophet Daniel confesses and repents for his ancestors' sin. You can find that in Daniel chapter 9. And the culture has, um, that he's a part of produced the sin that was in the past. He's still in that culture. And so he feels a measure of responsibility to, to lament and to say repent and to, and to say, I, I, I wish this weren't the case. I want it to change. So as an example, in another direction, in maybe a positive way, I didn't storm the beaches at Normandy. That wasn't me. Um, but that was the United States, um, Canada, Great Britain. Um, but when I talk about the beaches of Normandy being stormed, I say we. Mm. <laughs> and so, so what we'd like to do is take credit for the things that I didn't do that I really like, where I said, yeah, we did that. We beat the British. Well, I didn't beat the British. I'm Polish and Scots-Irish. I mean, I didn't do any of that, but, but I would say we did that, right? Or we beat the Soviets in hockey in 1980. We did that. But in the same way, we don't want to accept the we in a negative capacity. So ultimately, when I think about our doctrine of original sin and we're affected by Adam and Eve, we're being held accountable for that. It's just that simple. So there's corporate and individual responsibility. And there's systems that go in place with those things. And Keller makes the point. He, he says, listen, there's four ways. You're either in it and you know what's going on and you promote it and you agree with it. Or you know it and you kind of know what's happening, but it's happening in your favor so you're not worried about it. Or you know what's happening and you do nothing about it. Or you don't know and you don't care. Just kind of four ways of of dealing with this, and he uses the uh, example of the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. And I thought this was uh, incredibly helpful. He said, look, there's people who actively set up the death camps, right? And then, and then there were, that's one. And then two, there were guards who put in the rules of the death camps, who made sure that what those death camps were for were played out. And then three, there were civic leaders who kind of knew he said, oh, man, we're getting a lot more traffic from the train. Something weird is happening here. But they didn't want to do anything about it. And then citizens who just heard the rumors 
and didn't really want to know, they just pay their taxes and benefit from whatever Germany was doing globally or at least in Europe. So everyone who was in that system played a role. Now there were some who were more responsible for those things than others. But the system, in order for it to work, everyone had to play their part. And if they didn't, the system would not work. So I'm not saying that we should carry around some gigantic guilt mm -hmm. or sense of failure around those things. I am saying that lament is important yeah. and a repentance where it's needed. Um, because I can see how God has us both responsible for our individual sin and for sins that we're a part of. I think we stay in our confession for the things that we've done and for the things that we've left undone. So as Christians, and we're the ones who believe in the grace of God, I think that we can find that grace even in our brokenness. So there's, there's hope in that, uh, and, I'm, and I'm grateful for that. So what should our response be if we see injustice, personal or systemic? What should we do? Well, I think, first and foremost, we have to locate ourselves within the story of redemption. Um, Jesus, who was just, died for us who are unjust. We became justified because of who he is. And our job is to carry on the mission of the just one, as the justified, by bringing God's good and right rule to the rest of the world. We are now little Christs. That's where the term Christian came from. And that looks like him, and it smells like him, and it acts like him, and it looks like living out his life in us. So, so I go to Galatians 2.20, and I say, listen, it's Christ's life in us. It's not my life. And this is a side note, but it drives me crazy when somebody says, I'm living my, blessed, my best life. <laughs> and I think, if you're a Christian, the best life is Christ's life in you, so I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that you're living out Christ's life through you. Because of this, we are to do as Jesus did, which we think about in terms of loving our enemy and forgiving and those kinds of things, but there's more. For example, if you say bullying, it's easy to see bullying, and probably most of us have experienced bullying on some level. It's easy to say this person's a bully. We all have seen those things, and we're always going to have bullies, so what should we do? Well, I think we have to work for both retributive and restorative justice. And it's not unlike the Gakaka courts in Rwanda, where they brought people in after the genocide to work through the issues that were happening. It means you address the situation directly, stop the unjust act, knock it off, intervene and, and help people to pay a price for doing something that's wrong, that's retributive. But it's also listening to the person who's been injured. And it's also, in matter of fact, talking to the bully and seeing what's coming from them. And that's restorative. And the church is in a critical place where we have to be both. And what happens is, is when, you were when you're one way with one group, they cheer and they say, yeah, get that person. But then when you're, when you're restorative with somebody who's created a major fraction, um, people aren't as happy about that. So it's always a question of what does it look like and, and how do we address those mm -hmm. things? And I think we have to find it in how Jesus addressed us in the mm -hmm. gospel. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, so you, you have touched pretty briefly on what systemic injustice is and, and what we're supposed to do uh, when we see it. And now I want to just turn our attention uh, specifically to the topic of race and even more specifically 
to the topic of racial injustice, which, let's be clear, is, is just one of the many different kinds of injustices in the world. And to begin with, where I want to start is with what the Bible teaches about race. Again, we need to start with good theology. So I want to share four theological truths from the Scripture with you this morning. Uh, First of all, God created one human family from our common parents, Adam and Eve, and all humans bear God's image. See Genesis 1 and 2. The Bible uh, talks about humans in terms of peoples and nations and tribes, but not different races. That's something that human beings came up with. We are pretty good at finding ways to divide ourselves, especially uh, when we want to set ourselves apart as better than. So while we are talking about uh, race to mean groups of people with different skin colors, essentially, and from different ethnic backgrounds, we need to understand this is not the term the Bible uses. The reason we're using the word race today is while it's based on a myth, it still has real and unjust consequences in the world, which is the reason we're trying to address the problem of it today. The second thing that the Scripture teaches is that God's redemption of humanity has always been about all people, whether that's God's covenant with Abraham to bless all the nations, see Genesis 12, or whether it's the the new covenant in which Christ died for all the people in the whole world throughout space and time. See 1 Timothy chapter 1 or 1 John chapter 2. The third thing that the scriptures teach about race is that in the church, which is the representation of the kingdom of God on earth, there is, there is equality among all people in terms of belonging and value and voice. See Ephesians 2, which we read this morning, or Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 to 29. And finally, it should not be surprising to us that the scripture shows worship in the new creation as thoroughly multiracial. See Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. Now, because of this core theology that we have from the scriptures, racism stands in contrast to what the scriptures teach. And racism, I know there are lots of different definitions. Here's mine. It is the belief that a particular race of people is better or somehow more human than another in order to justify oppression of another race. This worldly idea, it does not reflect the image of God in all humans, and it does not reflect God's good and right ordering of human relationships. And if and when racist belief impacts how a person acts towards another person of another race, or impacts the outcomes of a human system towards people of another race. That is a racial injustice. Now, I pray that that as a congregation, we have a lot of agreement, maybe complete agreement, about the things that we've talked about so far. This is core theology, but, but here we come to perhaps the most difficult question we will ask today, and that is, does racial injustice still occur in our country. This may be an area where we have some disagreement. 
Does racial injustice still occur in the U.S.? If so, is it just small, isolated incidents, or is it more widespread? Does it occur just with individuals, or is it happening in our systems and institutions? Well, we've heard these, and there are all sorts of answers like this in the cultural discourse. Some people are saying, I don't see systemic racism. It's, it's been 150 years since the Civil War. It's been more than 60 years since the Civil Rights Movement. Can we please just move on? Others will say black people are still being systemically oppressed and killed, and therefore we need black lives to matter. And others will say, can't you see? All lives matter. Police matter. White people matter. Everybody matters. In the face of this kind of uh, fractured way of viewing what's happening in our society, I think the best thing that we can do this morning is to show what racial injustice looks like according to the Scriptures. Racial injustice, according to the Scriptures, can occur in terms of retributive justice. For example, if punishment for a wrongdoer doesn't happen because of their race, specifically if that person does wrong against someone of another race, that's a racial injustice. Or if innocent people of certain races are wrongly punished because of their race for the wrongs of others, that's a racial injustice. Or if certain races of people are punished more harshly than others because of their race, that's a racial injustice. Or if certain races of people are dealt with more forcefully by law enforcement because of their race, that's a racial injustice. If any of those things occur, whether because of a single human individual or a human system caused it, it is a racial injustice. Racial injustice can also occur in terms of restorative justice. For example, if hungry people go without food, if poor people go without income, if orphans go without parents, if the vulnerable go without protection, if the oppressed go without freedom, if the weak go without power, if foreigners go without safety, if the marginalized go without a voice, if if any of these things occur, whether because another human individual or a human system caused it, it's an injustice. And if that injustice is the result of racism, it's a racial injustice. Now here's the thing. In the United States, people with black and brown skin are much more likely to belong to these categories. Hungry, poor, orphan, oppressed, vulnerable, foreigner, marginalized. They are also much more likely to experience the retributive injustices I mentioned below. And please hear me. Because God loves black and brown people, and because we love black and brown people, we should want to ask the question. We should not be afraid of the question, why is that? How can that be? There are two extreme answers out there in our society today, and both are wrong. One is, this is all their fault. These people 
have had a fair shake. And so, if this is still happening, somehow they've brought it on themselves. Now, that answer, it, it ignores the reality of systemic evil and it undermines the value of those people by saying this is their fault as a race and not our fault as a nation of races. Answers like this were used as a justification for the fascism of Nazi Germany against the Jews. Now, I'm not saying that that answer is fascist. I'm just saying it can be used toward that end. A second extreme answer on the other side is that this is the fault of white people and the, the systems they set up to oppress us, and maybe it's the upper class too. And that answer, it ignores the reality of personal responsibility. And this extreme answer has been used in many communist revolutions around the world. And I'm not saying that that answer is communist, but I am saying it can be used toward that ends. And I think, I pray to God that as Americans, as Americans, neither answer will do because we value democracy, we value equal opportunity, we value freedom of expression, and freedom of religion. But more importantly as Christians, neither answer will do because sin is the fault of all of us. All of us. Injustice is because of me personally, it's because of you personally, and it's because of all of us corporately. And so because of this, when retributive injustices and or restorative injustices unequally affect a certain race or group of races, what other answer is there except that on some level, systemic racism and injustice is still having an effect. There's not really another plausible answer. To that point, I, I don't think, I haven't heard this at least, that anyone is saying racial injustice is worse now in the United States than it has been in the past. Of course, things are not like they were in the antebellum South or in the Jim Crow era, but if racial injustice is still occurring, then we all need to admit that less justice or less injustice is not the same as justice, right? Less injustice is not the same as justice. So, <clears throat> Bob, if and when we see racial injustice, whether that's in the church, whether that's in our nation, whether it's because of an individual or it's because of a group of people in a system they've created, what do we do? How, how are we supposed to respond with the gospel? Um, well, I think first and foremost, we have to allow our hearts to break. Um, if we're hard-hearted towards the suffering of other people, whether we think they deserved it or not, that's an issue. That's a heart. That's a heart issue. Um, and I've experienced that. I've been indifferent towards my brothers and sisters suffering. Um, I've been indifferent to the person on the side of the road who says they need help um, and decided that oh, there's plenty of ways for them to get help. I've allowed my heart to be hard about that. And so I think we have to allow our hearts to break. And, and, and the scriptures in Psalm 139, it says, search me, my God, and know my heart. Try me and see, know my thoughts. If there's 
any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And I think if we're not willing to do that, there's a different issue altogether. Because then we're the type of people who would say, God, I happily receive your grace and mercy, but I refuse to give it to those around me, which frankly I think is one of the worst, if not in my mind, it is the greatest human sin, period. Mm -hmm. To receive what God has for you and refuse to give it to those around you is unacceptable on every level. So, when it comes to institutionalized injustice and racism, we need to lament, I think. Um, the first thing is to, to, to break, to allow our hearts to break, to allow God to speak to us about where we're at with what we're seeing and how, how we're interacting with that. And I think that we need to cry out to God for deliverance, um, especially in our lives, but also for those who, who are suffering. Um, I think we need to repent for the ways in which we've allowed systemic things to occur in our lives. And, and all of us love to say, you know, repentance means to, to go a different direction, you know. It's not just say, oh, I feel sorry. Um, it's more like, no, I, I have to actually have to do something about this. So repentance means I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to go in a different direction. Because I think this is the critical piece, is, is the church has to repent and then rise. We have to repent and then rise because we're the ones in the culture who can meet this with the gospel. Yeah. I can't expect those of you who are watching, maybe even don't believe in Jesus, I can't expect you to behave in a way that's Christian. Mm -hmm. But if you're a Christian, I can expect you to behave that way. Yeah. So I think we need to first repent, and then second, I think we need to call it what it is. Um, not justify it or sweep it under the rug, but the police may um, be unjust against black people. We'll call it what it is. The, there may be injustice against the police. Call that what it is. Um, Injustice against the protesters. Call it what it is. It's injustice, period. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's injustice against business owners. And if, if, if we try to just sweep it under the rug and we just say, oh, no, it's you know, this or that, it, it doesn't actually deal with the fact that it's sitting there on us like a, like a gorilla you know, on our chest. Mm -hmm. So we have to call it what it is. And we have to do something about it. As Christians, I think we, we must care and we must work for both restorative and retributive justice. It has to be both. Mm -hmm. um, I think as Christians we've been really good on the retributive. Make sure they follow the law and make sure they get punished. But not so much on the restorative. And I think we have a lot to learn with people from Rwanda mm -hmm. who aren't our skin tone, who practice something like that. Imagine that that's poor people might have something to teach us about justice. I think we have to work for systemic change, and nobody wants to be guilty, right? So we can say, ah, it wasn't me. I didn't, I didn't do it. I mean, I remember, you know, if, if, if something went wrong in the house and, and my brother and I were there, it was always, it wasn't me. Um, but when it comes to injustice, because what Christ has done and who he's made us, we can't simply just say, well, I'm not guilty. Mm -hmm. We have to actively work against injustices. So when we see something, it's not enough to say, my hands are clean. It, it is, I'm actively working against that thing happening. So there's a huge difference between saying I'm not guilty and actively working for against things.
And I think we also have to wash feet. Um, just We need to wash people's feet in humility and join others who are doing the same. There's people who are angry um, and there's people who are hurting and there's people who are scared and there's people who are uncertain and we need a cloth around our waist and over our arm and a wash basin to go to them and say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Let me wash your feet. In the same way that Jesus humbled himself, we have to humble ourselves and listen and sacrifice. I think engaging in redemptive acts and standing against injustice, caring for the widow, the poor, the needy, these are ways that point to Christ. And, and I think that they give a sense of inbreaking of the kingdom in a world that's broken, broken, and desperately needs hope. And so, you know, Micah 6, 6 through 8, you know, it's a, a do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. Please, church, do that. Please do that, right? And Luke 10 and, and Romans 12, 9 through 21. I mean, overcome evil with good. It's not enough to say, I'm not evil. It's, it's overcome it with good. And so that, that's what I think when, that there has to be a wide swath of our response to racial injustice. And, and it looks like taking those steps, yeah. if that makes sense. And I, I think about that. Like, at Living Faith, we have a number of people here who aren't my skin tone. Praise God. Right? So, so how, do we, how do we do that here? I mean, I kind of want to bring it back to, you know, what, is that, what does that look like at Living Faith? Yeah, amen. Yeah, so this does impact us, right? I mean, yeah. number one, we're a church. Uh, number two, we are a multi-ethnic church. So let's talk about that. And I want you to know that, that as a pastor of this congregation, I, I have some concerns. In days of uh, political polarization and division uh, that we're seeing now, uh, on top of that, the pandemic isolation that we're all experiencing. And on top of that, um, the, the vitriol on social media that far too many Christians participate in. I have concerns about our ability as Christians to live together in unity. And as I said last week, in, in some ways to prime the pump for this week, um, unity, it not only affects the gospel's impact on our own life, but it certainly impacts our witness of the gospel to the world. Uh, nobody will believe the message of a church that has no unity. So in the face of difficult topics like these, when we don't agree, how do we maintain our unity? Well, I said it last week, and I want to say it again this week. St. Augustine said this in the 4th century. He said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. So that first part is, is in essentials unity. It means that we hold together on all foundational matters of theology and we don't compromise our doctrine because the gospel is at stake. A, a, a neutered gospel is not the gospel. But in non-essentials, we, we have liberty. And this means that outside of our core theology as Christians, there, there must be room for a disagreement. We don't just fracture our fellowship over minor things because the gospel is at stake. And finally, in all things, we must have charity. 
It means that we give grace to others in all things because that is the way of Jesus Christ. And so we do not perpetuate arrogant and hurtful discourse inside the church or outside the church because the gospel is at stake. And so when we, when we talk about uh, things in the gospel and culture series, things that are flashpoints like justice and race, uh, when we talk about racial injustice today, we must be really, really careful to love one another well. And I want to just give us a couple of examples of how to do that. One important way that we do that is by hearing from those groups of people who have experienced racial injustices historically and who have reason to believe that they still experience it today. Over and over again, God identifies himself as the one who listens to the oppressed and the vulnerable because nobody else will. There's, there's no incentive, no human incentive, to listen to the vulnerable. They can't get you anything. This is why God does this. This is what God does with, with all of us, and therefore, in the church, we need to be careful to do the same. I think more importantly, I think our default position should be to empathize and believe our brothers and sisters before we question their experience. A person in our congregation, everything I'm about to say is in our congregation, had to ride an hour to the black school downtown because they weren't allowed to attend the white school in the place where they lived, here in the valley. A person in our congregation endured the Japanese internment camps. A person in our congregation wrote me five pages worth of stories about how her family has experienced racism in the last two decades in the United States. A person in this congregation has had their unarmed black grandson killed by police. 20% of our congregation is not white. Some people in our congregation are married to a person of another race and have biracial children. Some people in our congregation have grandchildren or nieces and nephews of another race. Some people in our congregation have dedicated their entire lives to ministering to people of another race. And so my point is, this is deeply personal, not just to them, but to us. They're in our family. They're in our church. They're in the body of Christ. And while you don't have to agree, you do have to love. You have to love. And so at whatever view you arrive at, and however you choose to express those views, love. Love. Otherwise, you are a loud and a clanging symbol. And that may be as you speak out or as you remain silent, because silence can be deafening. But you must love. We must love. I want to close with, with a collect from the, the Book of Common Prayer. And, and before I do that, I, I want to say this very, very clearly. Jesus is the only hope for justice and racial reconciliation in the world. Period. Full stop. End of story. Therefore, the gospel must 
go forth. We must embody it with our lives and speak it with our words because the fate of the world is at stake. And so as much time and energy as you throw into discourse, if it does not include the gospel, and if it is not with the gospel means and attitudes, frankly, it's not worth your time. Let Jesus be made much of here, in your home, on your Facebook feed, in your life, wherever you set foot, to the glory of God. And let me close with this prayer. Oh God, you made us in your own image and you redeemed us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Look with compassion on the whole human family. Take away the arrogance and hatred which infect our hearts. Break down the walls that separate us. Unite us in bonds of love and work through our struggle and confusion to accomplish your purposes on earth that in your good time, All nations and races may serve you in harmony around your heavenly throne. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.